You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This election, voters are casting ballots for members of Congress, for governor, and in some places, for coroner. We got a question about that. My name is Luke Chambers. I live in Colorado Springs. On the ballot that I received for the election this year, coroners had a party, either Democrat or Republican. I was wondering why. Well, Luke is right. In most of Colorado, the people who review deaths aren't appointed, but rather elected. And that made Luke wonder. That doesn't seem like necessarily a political party function or that a political party would be needed for that function. So I was kind of joking about it. And then I was like, oh, wait, why? He sent his question through Colorado Wonders, CPR's project to look for answers when something mystifies you. Luke's question led us to Randy Gordon, president of the Colorado Coroners Association, and to some interesting discoveries. Maybe you heard me say coroners are elected in most of Colorado. Gordon told us the exceptions are Denver, Pitkin, and Weld counties. There, the coroner is appointed because of home rule, which gives communities the right to exercise local control of their government. And so in Denver, the coroner is chosen by the Board of Public Health and Environment. Where coroners are elected, the process looks familiar, Gordon says. They go through the party just like everything else and have to go through a primary, and then that's who is chosen to go on the ballot. I think Jefferson had four or five people running for the coroner's office. That is Jefferson County, where voters will choose between Republican Thomas Weldon and the Democrat Annette Cannon. Look at their websites, and you won't find partisan lobs. They actually seem to distance themselves from party and instead tout their experience. In fact, many coroners are unaffiliated, Gordon says, and party doesn't really factor into the job. I mean, it doesn't make any difference on a death scene. I've never asked anybody or any family or anything else if they were ever party affiliated. I mean... That has nothing to do with it. Nothing does. No skin color, no nothing has anything to do with what you're doing on a corner scene. And so, Luke, unless you're a straight-ticket voter, you may want to look past party and instead at qualifications and ethos. Here's another interesting thing. The role of coroner might seem like the domain of a medical professional, but that is often not the case. Look no further than the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which says a coroner is, quote, typically not required to have specific medical qualifications. Gordon, who works in Kit Carson County, explains the guidelines in Colorado. For the coroner position, you have to be 18, and you have to be able to pass a background a CBI check. You can't have any warrants. You can't have um, anything against you out there and order to run for the coroner's office. If you're elected to go into the coroner, you have a, what they call a new coroner's training or new coroner's institute that you take 40 hours. The misconception is that all coroners do autopsies and everything else, and that's not true. It's like me. I do the investigation part. I'm still the one that signs the death certificate with the cause and manner of death. But if I have an autopsy, I have to go to a forensic pathologist for my autopsies. With that is how I will determine cause and manner of death a lot of times. So I've got some medical background, but I'm not a doctor, and there's not many coroners in Colorado that are. I can tell you that El Paso County, 
Larimer County, Denver County are forensic pathologists. By the way, Gordon says that coroners also have to do 20 hours of continuing education each year, each year to meet the state standards. So our thanks to Luke Chambers of Colorado Springs for his question submitted through Colorado Wonders. What else do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. On the western slope, voters are weighing some harsh realities. For some, there's hardship even in a good economy. For others, there's anxiety over the depletion of resources that once seemed endless. CPR's John Daly continues our road trip to November and found the state's good times are tempered by unsettling changes. It's the end of the farmer's market season in the mountain town of Carbondale. A Dixieland jazz band warms up. Just up the street, Bob Olenek works at a vegetable stand. Parked next to it, his vintage Chevy truck. There's not a lot of vehicles that have moss and lichen growing on them, but this one does, so it's, it's a unique structure. Olenek has lived in the Roaring Fork Valley for decades. He's watched as Carbondale shifted from its coal and mining past to become a popular tourist destination. The change has presented opportunities and hurdles. For years, Olenek ran a restaurant here. In our community, the biggest challenge is housing, keeping employees and stuff like that. And I think that's probably an issue in the state. I mean, there's got to be more employee housing built. Somehow, something that's a little more affordable. It's a common lament. At Bonfire Coffee on Carbondale's Main Street, there's a long line of customers, and the steamer is a near-constant use. Charlie Chacos, who was raised in Carbondale, owns the shop. He opened it in 2011 and says it was a steady climb out of the recession. Chacos says the local economy is driven by real estate development, with plenty of business from contractors and service workers who live in the valley. Things are busy um, and, and booming. Right now, as a business owner in a small town, um, finding qualified labor is our biggest challenge for sure. Chacos agrees that a key issue is a lack of affordable housing. One of his managers is 32-year-old Brittany Rippey. I love the small community, and I love what the outdoors has to offer. Yeah, but it is tough to be here. Rippey works three jobs about 80 hours a week. Her cost of living is high, so she rents a room in her sister's basement for $800 a month. She's had friends leave town because they couldn't afford a home here. Rippey says for many people, the economy is at a breaking point. There's really no middle class anymore. You're either up top or you're in the bottom. I mean, there's so many of us that are just struggling. Farther west, there are other economic worries. Nikki Holiday lives in Grand Junction. She's an administrator for small businesses. She says the number one issue for her family this election season isn't housing, it's health care. She feels stuck in the middle. Stuck in between this paradox of... <laughs> The government trying to expand health care for people and then health care costs going up. Halliday's husband is a carpenter. They have three daughters but are uninsured because health care coverage is simply too expensive. It seems like there could be a reasonable fix. On Grand Junction's quaint Main Street, Phyllis Hunsinger says the top thing on her mind is Proposition 112. The proposal would increase the minimum distance for new oil and gas wells from homes and schools. Hunsinger says Coloradans would feel the brunt if the industry has to pull back. I think they would be horrified if they realized how many billions of dollars that we stand to lose should that amendment pass. 
Hunsinger is a retired school superintendent and Trump supporter. She backs Republican Walker Stapleton for governor and worries about funding for the public pension system. Hunsinger maintains it'll be bad for the state if both Democrat Jared Polis is elected governor and the setback measure passes. Oh, absolutely. Walker Stapleton is the only one that could possibly keep the economy going in this state. We can't afford Jared Polis any more than we can afford to have life without the oil and gas industry. But you'll get a different opinion from John Noyes. He's studying environmental science at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. I am a big advocate for um, our public lands. And so it's um, very important to me that we keep our American heritage. On their land near the Colorado River, Noyes and his wife raised their two young boys along with some goats. <laughs> Noyes describes himself as a libertarian conservationist. He voted for Bush, then Obama, then independent Gary Johnson in the last election. This fall, he backs Democrat Jared Polis for governor and favors the oil and gas setback measure. I am very worried about the impact of oil and gas. I'm worried about what fracking is actually doing to our environment. Not far away, there are also worries about the future of the water supply. And then this row right here, these are nectarine trees. Brian Hessling helps run a family-owned fruit farm called Just Peachy in Palisade. There are about 1,000 trees on 10 acres. The farm gets its water from the Colorado River, but Hessling says drought is hitting the Colorado Plateau hard. Demand for Palisade peaches seems limitless, but Hessling says water to grow them is not. If we do not start having some decent winters on the western slope, there will start to see shortages. We've had unprecedented growth in this state for so many years, and the water is getting used up. Hessling is an independent voter who supported both Democrats and Republicans. He thinks a lot of people are just turned off by politics. But Hessling says whoever wins will be faced with tough decisions on many things, including how to make a limited supply of water go as far as it can. It's got to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with in a way that has plans for the future. Back at the Carbondale Farmer's Market, trombonist Greg Rusi's band gets set to start. He's an attorney from Newcastle. He ponders the tenuous state of the natural world that's helped make Colorado what it is. Rusi says lately the area has seen its share of big fires and bad air quality. Wildfire mitigation is incredibly important, and I don't know if we're doing enough in our outlying areas to mitigate for the potential of wildfires taking out buildings and structures. Rusi has been closely watching the shrinking levels of a key water source, the nearby Paonia Reservoir. And the best thing we can do in a long range is begin to take global climate change seriously. Rusi says it's a top election year issue for him, and he'd like government officials at all levels to face the music. I'm John Daly, CPR News. John's story is part of CPR's Road Trip to November. Our reporters canvassed the state to hear from people ahead of the election. You can see our stories mapped out along with some stirring photos at roadtrip.cpr.org. One sign of a close political race is how nasty it gets in the final days. CPR's Allison Sherry reports the Colorado Attorney General race is now in that stage. First, let's talk about the ad the Republican Attorneys General Association placed against Democrat Phil Weiser. Quote, Phil is proud of the courtroom litigation he has participated in. Proud to defend a pedophile? Phil Weiser should not. Attack ads are called attack ads for a reason. 
but this particular ad has touched off a nerve in the legal community. The Colorado Bar Association and a bipartisan pair of former district attorneys have decried the ad, saying it dangerously politicizes their profession. Thirteen years ago, Weiser was asked by the Tenth Circuit Court to lend his constitutional knowledge, pro bono, to the appeals case of a convicted pedophile. Weiser said for him to be attacked for this, years later, desecrates the job lawyers do day after day. I believe it's dangerous, and I believe it should be condemned as an attack, particularly given the fact that George Bacher has represented criminal defendants who've done pretty bad things. That doesn't make him a bad person. Republican George Brockler's campaign has nothing to do with the controversial ad, and Brockler says he wouldn't denounce something he didn't have any control over. He also says the ad contradicts his criticisms of Weiser. The professor is wholly unqualified to be attorney general based on a complete lack of experience. The ad that's being run is one that talks about a client that he had. I've been running around talking about the fact that he's really had no clients. Brockler also says he, too, has been the subject of inaccurate ads, including one from the Democratic Attorneys General Association. And Brockler supports taking away a woman's right to choose. Brockler says that's not true. Both candidates say they want to stay focused on the issues, which is what makes them qualified to run the state's top legal office. However, when elections get close, the people supporting the candidates usually turn up the heat in a last-ditch effort to move a few voters. These ads may prove how tight this race really is. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Landmarks honoring Latino history in Colorado are scarce. Some historians say these sites are either poorly preserved or not preserved at all. Nikki Gonzalez joins us. She's a member of a new council at History Colorado tasked with diversifying what the organization documents. And welcome to the program, Nikki. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Share an example uh, from your historian's point of view that hasn't been preserved, a site perhaps uh, whose significance in Colorado history has been lost or is not as prominent as it should be. Sure. So many sites come to mind. One of the the one site one of the sites that immediately comes to mind is West High School. So which was in 1969 the site of a series of walkouts by students who were protesting racist policies by the school and poor treatment by their their teachers, and they were demanding a diversification of the curriculum and of the staff. This is in Denver. Yes. Yeah. And just say a bit more about why that's such a pivotal moment. Sure. So it was 1969, which was at the height of the Chicano movement nationally. And it was this important turning point where students in Denver started to take a more prominent role in activism. And so they took a stand with support from community members about you know, their treatment in Denver public schools and staged a big walkout at West High School, which turned into a big blowout. Um, But it was an important turning point in the movement, for sure. And I guess your point is that a lot of people, one, don't know that history and and what it's not well marked. Right. I even wonder if students at West know about this. I think a lot of them don't know about this history and it's not well marked. And it's something that I think that, that should be marked more clearly. How about another example? Um, Another example would be, again, uh, many of these examples come from the Chicano movement era in the 1960s and 70s. And one is the students at CU Boulder who in 19... 
in the late 1960s staged a, an occupation, a 19-day occupation of temporary building number one, again in protest of poor treatment by the administration. What was temporary building number one? It was the financial aid building at CU Boulder, and the students were protesting um, policies that were discriminatory against them in financial aid awards, and also um, just generally poor treatment by the university. And I imagine that some of this history you think would be more prominent goes back even further uh, before the 1960s. Right. So, but I think in some ways that earlier history, when we're talking about, you know, the 1860s, late 1800s in general, um, is a little bit better preserved and more celebrated. Right. That's a bit counterintuitive, I suppose. I know that you spent a a good amount of time in the San Luis Valley. Yes. And this is a place where... Uh, many Latinos say, listen, the border crossed us. We were here. Exactly. And I think that's one, I mean, that's an argument for the, I guess, a more robust um, preservation of these Latino historical sites is because um, Latino history in Colorado is a very diverse, complex history. And it's, in many ways, it is our collective history, yes. no, no matter your race, race or ethnicity. Right. Some of the, the labor sites that I would advocate for preserving, such as the coal fields of southern Colorado, where Latinos were main contributors to, say, strike history in the 19-teens and even as early as 1903. I mean, that was very, very diverse history. There were alliances made with Greek miners, with um, Eastern European miners, Chilean miners. I'm fascinated to learn that the state constitution was written not just in English. Right. It was, Will you tell us about this? Sure. So the state constitution was written in 1876 and was written in three languages, so English, Spanish, and German. And there were three very prominent Latino politicians who were very involved in the writing of that constitution. Why do you think uh, these sites, this history has has not been have not been documented? Um, well, I think in general, it's it's often hard to get resources to document any historical site. Okay, I mean, this is it, a problem in general. Right, it's a budget uh-huh. problem in general. And I also think that historically, the people making these decisions have not really given a nod to Latino history. I mean, it's been a the dominant narrative. Narrative has often excluded Latinos. What will it take to change that? Um, I think one is just maybe beefing up the curriculum in public schools around a more inclusive Colorado history um, where students can gain an appreciation for these, but also diversifying the the groups of people who are making these decisions and also listening to people on the ground because much of this Latino history is still in the minds, the oral histories of grassroots people. Is that part of your work? That is. Yeah. Right. I mean, I know that you spent some time in the San Luis Valley. Right. Was it doing that kind of work? Exactly. So I wrote my PhD dissertation on the Sangre de Cristo land grant um, and the the court cases around those land rights. And so I spent a lot of time talking with people doing oral histories. What's the top line of that history? What does it tell us about the state? It tell, tells us that there's a very long, complex Latino presence um, and that Latinos, while, yes, being historically marginalized in many ways, have really throughout history been very resilient in their resistance of, of racism, outright racism. And in that case, with the Taylor Ranch case, they, they were successful in, in gaining their land rights back. I wonder if part of the reason this history has been somewhat sidelined is that it might make 
uh, the, the more general population confront racism, confront some pretty painful realities about its past. Do you think that there's a bit of an avoidance going on here? Oh, I, I know there is an avoidance. And I also know that it's complicated with Latino history as well, because, I mean, that's a group that was both conquered and conqueror. They're not indigenous to this landscape. Yeah, that's fascinating. Right. 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 Talk about complicated. Exactly. And that was one of the main issues that Chicano activists brought up during the 1960s and 70s is that complex history with uh, indigenous people. I'd like to go back to what school children in Colorado are learning in terms of history. I'll put you on the spot just a little bit. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the intricacies of curriculum, but... uh, Do you know if all Colorado children have to have like a Colorado history class and to what extent that includes Latino history? And I I realize that there's a lot of local control and many districts in Colorado, so this may vary. But can you speak a bit to what young people are learning? Um, I can speak a little bit. Um, obviously, I'm more familiar with universities. Yeah. But um, I'll say for- that you teach at Regis, by right. the way. And so in fourth grade, Colorado students do take a Colorado history class. But I can tell you the students that I get at the university level, many of them have never learned Mexican-American or Latino history. So I think some districts don't cover it at all. Does that mean you do a fair bit of catch up by the time they're getting to college? Absolutely. Oh. What are some of your favorite well-documented sites for Latino history? So we've talked about the the absence, the lack. Tell me about a place I could go today and absorb some of this. Okay. Well, I think um, – well, that's a tough one. I think the um, the community of San Luis is pretty well-documented as far as being the first um, town established in, in Colorado history. In Southern Colorado. Right, in Southern Colorado. And um, they have a nice cultural center, which tells a lot of the history. Um, so I, I think that's one of the more well-documented. But even then, it's a, you know there's a lot more to the story than, than is preserved. I think of some of the murals in Denver as well. Right. And there's also an effort to preserve those Chicano-era murals. So from that same Chicano movement era. Yes, It's been a real pleasure to meet you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Nikki Gonzalez is a history professor at Regis University, and she's also a part of History Colorado's State Historians Council. I want to say that on Friday, we'll explore why the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History is making a stop in Denver. A shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue this past weekend has brought anti-Semitism into harsh focus in America. Colorado has seen a spike in hate crimes and white supremacist activity, according to the Anti-Defamation League. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad reports the increase mirrors a national trend in the last several years. On Sunday, Denver's Temple Emanuel hosted a solidarity vigil less than 24 hours after a gunman killed 11 congregants at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Emanuel is one of the oldest, largest synagogues in the Rocky Mountain region, and Rabbi Joe Black says he'd never seen the place so full. Our sanctuary was completely full. We added as many folding chairs as we could. We had people sitting in the aisles and standing in the back. And then there was a there were several hundred people, as I'm told, because I didn't see it, in the foyer, and then another several hundred people 
sitting in chairs in our social hall where the the audio was piped in. Saturday's attack comes as anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise across America. Black says he's consoled congregants who were the victims of anti-Semitism before. We at Temple Emanuel have had to change our security procedures uh, over the last two years, uh, largely because of the rhetoric and the response to the rhetoric that we see coming from the highest offices in the land. So yes, we have seen it, um, and it is very upsetting to us. The Anti-Defamation League reported a 60 percent increase nationally in anti-Semitic incidents last year, which the nonprofit classifies as incidents of harassment, vandalism, or assault. A crime does not have to be reported to police. In Colorado, there were 18 such incidents in 2015. By last year, there were nearly 60 such incidents. Scott Levin is the executive director of the ADL's Mountain States region. He says ADL has tracked almost as many incidents so far this year. It can be everything then from uh, somebody that is painting a swastika on a Jewish institution to somebody that is being verbally assaulted uh, while they're standing in line at the grocery store because they're Jewish. Levin says that this year the group has also tracked about 50 incidents of white supremacist activity in Colorado. And that would be everything from posters that are being put up on college campuses all around Colorado to leafleting and flyering, as well as people that are dropping banners over the sides of highway overpasses, proclaiming some danger to the white race or a need to act up at this time. The ADL's numbers, though, are just one set of numbers. Across the country, bias-motivated incidents, which they're sometimes called, are tracked differently depending on who's doing the tracking. Getting a complete tally of all those kinds of incidents in Colorado is difficult. Rachel Glickhouse manages Documenting Hate, a project of the independent news organization ProPublica. The mission of the project is to build more comprehensive data on hate crimes. Well, you can get numbers, but the accuracy of those numbers is questionable. Glickhouse points out that when it comes to ADL or other nonprofits, the incidents they're tracking may not rise to the level of an actual reported crime. And if you're looking for data on hate crimes that have occurred, Glickhouse says there's a number of reasons why law enforcement data may not be as reliable, even FBI data. The FBI collects those numbers from local law enforcement agencies who in turn are supposed to keep track. We just have found a huge variety of ways that police go about tracking these on forms, on internal systems, and we've just found so many problems with how they are actually tracked internally, and we have found undercounting and overcounting. Complicating things even more, Glickhouse pointed to a 2015 survey by the Federal Bureau of Justice Statistics that found more than half of people who were targeted by a possible hate crime did not report it to police. Last year, the Denver-based Matthew Shepard Foundation dug deeper to learn the reasons why people may not report. One of the biggest takeaways? Many were uncertain whether what happened to them was a crime. The latest available year of FBI data, that's 2016, showed that Colorado reported 104 hate crimes. 2017 numbers will be out later this fall. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. On Monday, I spoke with the head of Colorado's Interfaith Alliance. She'd taken part in a massive vigil in Denver to honor the victims of the Pittsburgh synagogue attack. That conversation drew some feedback that I want to share now in loud and clear. 
Megan Garrett of Denver says she listens to the Colorado Matters podcast and that she's a member of the Jewish community. While she thanked us for highlighting the vigil, she was upset and frustrated by my interview about the Interfaith Alliance. Quote, I felt Ryan Warner cornered Reverend Amanda Henderson by asking her about the current political culture and how it's been inciting hate, bigotry, and intolerance. We all know many of our political leaders are perpetuating hate, and this is why I thought it was a missed opportunity to dive into what really matters. If we continually label our political figures as evil, their supporters will stop coming to the table. I felt you could have asked... More questions about productive things, like asking the Interfaith Alliance about what projects they're working on. Thanks for your feedback, Megan. Let's also get a quick update now on a story we've been following from the very beginning. It's about a Boulder nonprofit that was supposed to help refugees. HumanWire connected donors with families fleeing violence. And some of them grew quite close, even if they could only connect over Skype. So Ramadan is over. Were the children able to get clothes for the um, celebration? We profiled the charity in 2017. Sometime later, red flags started being raised about how much money was actually reaching displaced people. Law enforcement got involved. There was a Denver Post investigation. And now Human Wire's founder, Andrew Barron, has pled no contest to fraud. The Post reports he was given a one-year deferred sentence. He can't do any charity work in that time. He'll have to do community service and pay about $27,000 in restitution. In a Facebook post Monday, Barron writes that he should and could have done better, but that people who used Human Wire to its fullest potential changed the world for thousands of people and their future generations. And we'll be right back with the Ghost Town Club. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When it comes to election security, experts often rank Colorado at the top. But many Coloradans aren't convinced their vote is safe. Do we really have a voice or are we yelling in a hole or a pit and somebody else is pulling the strings in the background? I'm Sam Brash, host of our election podcast, Purplish. And this week, Colorado's defense against election hacking. That's Purplish from Colorado Public Radio. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And let's visit a ghost town. Think abandoned miner shacks with squeaky doors, decrepit storefronts lining a deserted main street. Or it could be even bleaker, empty prairie where a town once stood. Those are the kinds of places Ron Ruhoff of Genoa, Colorado, likes to visit. He is the last remaining charter member of the Ghost Town Club of Colorado, founded 60 years ago. Hi, Ron. Hello there, Ryan. You visit ghost towns both with the club and by yourself. I understand there's one near Telluride that's among your favorites. Will you tell us about it? Well, down near Telluride, there's a beautiful ghost town called Alta. It's got to be the most photogenic place with old buildings in the foreground and the beautiful San Miguel Range in the back. It's an interesting town. It was still alive up until about 1945, people working the Gold King Mine. And that particular mine had a, had a very special uh, feature because the very first alternating current power plant, hydro plant, was built right there to run the machinery in that mine. 
and it was uh, built by George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla. My goodness, we we recognize both of those names for sure, right. Westinghouse and Tesla. And that uh, power plant is still in operation today. Of course, not the original equipment. But there's a lot to see in Alta, and is it that, that anyone can just walk in? You can go up there. There's a four-mile dirt road off Colorado Highway 145, just south of Telluride. But uh, no no big problem to go up there in a the car. And uh, the three Alta lakes are there, some nice fishing and camping. What explains its decline? It was probably the uh, wartime, for one thing, and uh, lack of uh, ore, uh, worthwhile ore had pretty well run out. It was primarily gold in that mine. I understand there are some 700 ghost towns in Colorado. Oh, what, yes. What makes a ghost town? Like, does it have to be completely abandoned? Well, there are probably several different kinds of ghost towns. Huh. There's, uh, of, out of those 700, probably at least 500 of them, there's really nothing left anymore. You wouldn't necessarily see that there's a town there. But uh, there used to be. And places like that are fun to see, even if you're looking in an open meadow and happen to have an old photograph with you that shows what was there a hundred years ago. Do a little of your own before and after. Would you give us an example of a town like that? Well, one might be uh, up at uh, Camp Hale on Tennessee Pass. That was a military camp during World War II. And it was a tremendous place. Eventually, it was all torn down, and you go by that big meadow today, and you see some concrete foundations, and that's about all that remains. Okay, so that's one kind of ghost town, the kind that really uh, is empty today, has no structures, and that's the the bulk of them. What other kinds of ghost towns are there? Well, we have the kind that has several buildings still remaining, but no one lives there anymore. And uh, we have examples of that, such as Ascroft over near Aspen, Independence up on Highway 82 above Aspen, and uh, Alta is one, Yeah, Carson above Lake City. And I gather where you're headed next is that there are some ghost towns perhaps with minimal population, but That's not right. completely abandoned. That's right. How, does, how is that towns. a ghost town? In other words, there are people there. Well... I think ghost town uh, is has been applied to towns with people. Uh, maybe Hollywood Western movies got that term started, uh-huh. and pretty much fits uh, towns of the old mining towns uh, in the West. But there are ghost towns everywhere for many reasons. Uh, as an example, when uh, the interstate highway system was built in our country. Just think how many towns all across the country that were bypassed on the old U.S. highways. And many of them became ghost towns because they lost all their commerce. And some of them are still there, but very few people remaining. Yeah, how about a few examples of of ghost towns where there are just a few people remaining? St. Elmo. Let's let's talk about St. Elmo. That's, oh, this is one of That's one of, of the first places. ones I ever visited. And that is up above Buena Vista, and it was on the Denver South Park and Pacific Narrow Gauge Railway in the early days. And when I first visited in 1955, there was a big, long main street just full of buildings. All appeared to be abandoned, but there were a few people around. 
I think of St. Elmo as the place where you feed the wild chipmunks. That's right. Yeah. So this is between, as you say, Buena Vista and Salida. But I actually think of that as a place with a lot of life these days. It, it is. It it's might... coming back to life. Uh-huh. So that's possible. I suppose it's rare, but it's possible. A lot to... of places are like that. How vulnerable are the ghost towns that still have structures left? Uh, are they very prone to vandalism? And is uh, is that part of what you try to prevent as a member of the Ghost Town Club of Colorado? Well, it's it's something that is a big problem with a lot of the old towns and individual buildings, not only because of weather, gradually weathering and heavy winter snows collapsing the buildings, right. but uh, that beautiful old weathered wood that that makes the walls on, on buildings uh, is an attraction to uh, take home and build something at home with. And we've had a lot of buildings disappear for that reason. And preservation is something we really try to tell people about. about. Is, is it plainly illegal to do that, to it go to is. a ghost town and Antiquities take— Antiquities Act. Okay. And uh, so it is an illegal thing to take things from a town. So how do you prevent that at the ghost town club? Well, I think uh, in our club, we've— in our programs and uh, at monthly meetings, we talk about visiting places and we try to tell people uh, that uh, it's not right to take things from the old towns. Is there an example of a town that the club is focused on at the moment? Uh, probably uh, Animus Forks, north of Silverton. A uh, lot of buildings still there. Huh. And the club has gotten involved in years past in rebuilding or shoring up some of the old structures there. What does it look like? Oh, that's a neat town. The uh, The old bay window home uh, is one of the main structures there that has remained for so many years. And uh, a few years back, the club got together with tools and carpentry materials and went up and helped fix the floors and the roofing and shore up the foundation. And now in even more recent years, the Silverton Historical Society has worked on that quite a lot. And uh, now the town, even ha that building has windows in it. I was going to say, if it's known for the, for the bay windows, it ought to have glass in the windows. Is there a, a ghost town that you have not seen yet that you'd like to see? Oh, there's probably several that I've that I have had on my list for many years. Tell us about one before we go. Well, one of them is uh, Lulu City. It's up in Rocky Mountain National Park. I understand there's not much left these days, but it'd be fun to go see it. If you drive up to Trail Ridge Road from Granby, you would be able to uh, hike back in off one of the switchbacks on the highway there, about four miles, I think, to Lulu City. I never did that. Okay. There's still time. Ron, thanks for being with us. Could we say something about our Ghost Town Club website? Well, how about this? We'll post it to ours. That's at, a good idea. At CPR.org. That's Ron Ruhoff of Genoa, Colorado. He's a founding member of the Ghost Town Club of Colorado, formed 60 years ago. Indeed, we'll put more information at our website later today. A haunted house returns to Metro Denver this Halloween after a recent hiatus and just in time for its 50th anniversary. It's run by the Ranky Brothers, who've been obsessed with scaring folks since they were kids. 
Here's the older Renke, who is pretty much the instigator of the two, telling the story. My name is Greg Renke. I'm an owner and co-founder of Renke Brothers. It's a costume and Halloween superstore, and we've been around for 50 years. And our big slogan is, it's not just a store, it's an adventure. Welcome to our humble haunted mansion. At nine years old is when we built our first haunted house. How it happened is we went fishing, and I caught a shopping cart. That's how good of a fisherman I was. Well, I took the shopping cart home, cleaned it all up. We hung up blankets in the basement of my parents' house. My father's a Marine. He had a footlocker. I made a coffin out of that. My oldest brother had a skull, stuffed some clothing. We had an old rubber mask, and we hooked up some strings. And then on the front of the basket, my brother, Chris, we hooked a strobe light up. And then we charged the neighbor kids during Halloween night a penny to come down. They got in because I wanted to make a ride made them sit in the basket, and we pushed them through, and Chris would feed the extension cord while I pulled the strings. That was our first haunted house. We made like 27 cents, so we were on our way at that very point. But that's how the haunted mansion started. Children's tours. Just send the monsters to lunch, turn on the lights, and let them see. Let them touch, feel, let them push the buttons, make the fog, and let them see the difference between fantasy and reality. Uh, So the haunted house was kind of scary, but I didn't freak out. It was really fun. First time going through, and I now want to go through the night tour. We don't do blood and guts. We don't chase you with knives or chainsaws. We have illusions. We have animatronics. We have actors. For the crime of witchcraft, we find you guilty. Guilty. We don't depend on just the cheap thrill because it's... I don't think it's really that scary. So we spend a lot of money building full sets. So it's like going through a movie set or the back lot at Universal Studios. Okay, you ready? First couple of rooms, we make it kind of high schoolish, not really scary, and then people let down their guard. And then after we get them in deep enough, they can't just turn around, then we tear them up. (laughs) When you first come in, the doorman tells you to be respectful. Don't touch the props. They won't. Don't touch the people. They won't touch you and stuff. Well, as soon as you tell people, don't touch things. They touch things. So this is our room of touch, and this is where we usually get them over it pretty quick. For instance, when they come in, they'll start checking these doors. See, this door doesn't open this way, but the monster hears you doing it. Then he opens it this way, and he comes out at you. But the best one is they, now. See, they, nothing really has done a whole lot to you, but then they come over here and they open this way, and then you know. Don't touch. <laughs> this is one of the, the funnest rooms. This is the Toontown. I just love the buildings moving, the clowns, everything about it. It's like walking through a cartoon. This next part, I'm going to let you go first. Oh, gee, thanks. You're welcome. Wow. Okay, this is crazy. It's a vertigo machine. It'll mess you up. What you see with your eyes and what your brain is telling you that you're stable doesn't compute, so your brain is actually having a problem right now trying to visualize and feel what it actually, your equilibrium. That's why you want to lean. The floor is level. You can walk through, but they all are, they're fighting their thoughts is all it is. 
Uh, I'm wishing I hadn't had a big lunch before this. <laughs> oh my gosh. My father and my mother decided to take my brother and I, Chris, to the uh, Disneyland. So we're like 12 years old, and we go. The first ride we get on is Pirates of the Caribbean. And it's a little china cabinet there that they had skulls on. My brother and I were staring at them. My father walked up and said, "Would you like one?" I said, "Yes." Came back to Denver and I bought a china cabinet for five dollars, and I had some plaster Paris skulls that I could buy cheap, and I put them on the china cabinet and sold them at the end of my haunted house. Well, to this day, the china cabinet's in my store, sitting right here with all the skulls. And I've sold tens of thousands of dollars of skulls off that $5 cabinet. I tell people I retired at 12. It was great. I've done this all my life. In fact, if something were to happen, I'm not sure where I'd go. They'd kind of go, where have you been? I, I have no resume. You know, there's nothing that says I was here, I was here, you know. I have one job for 50-some years. <laughs> Chris is, he and I, he's 18 months younger than me, so we've always been together. When he went to college, he was going to study to be a doctor, and he was in pre-med. And we started getting so busy, I said, you want to keep this going, or what do you want to do? And he said, yeah. So here he is, and we've been together ever since. So it's great. I got to grow up with my brother, and basically he's my day wife, I guess you could say. (laughs) This is the dancing skeletons I told you about, which is awesome. My staff, we go and we'll have a beer and we'll say, let's make skeletons dance. Well, how are we going to do that? I don't know, but let's go do it. Then we come back and build it. These are actually spinning really fast. The strobe light catches them like a picture, like a stomp frame. That's how you see them dancing. But if you turn this off, if you turn on the lights right now, these guys would be spinning so fast you can't really even see them. Those types of ideas and what's great is we all get to be kids again. We're all like 12-year-olds is what we are. And we're just like, hey, let's build a treehouse and go play in it. Would you travel 25, 30 miles to go to a costume store? No. But here they do. In fact, we get people from Laramie, Wyoming, from New Mexico. They come here to go through the haunted house and then to shop because it's like a whole adventure. They get everything done here. The haunted house is a great hook for a costume store. We started out with like 10 costume rentals that I made. And uh, my mom was a great seamstress and she taught me how to sew. And what's interesting, she, uh, she believed in me all those years when people thought I was nuts or kind of goofy. In fact, I got spanked at school because I made a monster out of clay and they sent me to the principal. He spanked me, then sent me to the counselor who told me I'd be nothing more than a garbage collector. But both my mom and dad never said anything bad. In fact, they supported everything we did. They used to work the ticket counter together. And my dad still does. He's 87. He sells the tickets up here. He's kind of upset that we got Internet sales now. He says, you're taking away from my work. <laughs> I said, Dad, it's be easier on you. You're a little slower anyway. It's never perfect. But to the rest of the world, they don't really notice. So the day that I walk through and go, this is perfect, <laughs> probably be the day that I die and they'll wax me and stick me inside there, you know? <laughs> Ranky Brothers owner and co-founder Greg Ranky, and you heard CPR's Michael Hughes, who produced that story. The Haunted Mansion is open through November 4th in Littleton. See photos and a video at CPR.org. Finally today, let's contemplate life during the zombie apocalypse. What might a marriage proposal sound like when the undead are all around? 
CSU Pueblo English professor Juan Morales answers that with his poem, The Long Engagement. Will you shoot bottles with me on weekends shortly after the first reports of attacks? Will you grimace next to me when the television signals black out from the dropped warheads glistening on metropolises? Do you promise to huddle next to the radio with me until we lose all voices to static? Will you dig the fallout shelter we are not meant to finish, share weary smiles, and brush ash from my hair too? I will walk beside you on the rubbled streets and overstopped fields, resist picking the only flowers left for you, kill whatever is edible in times of rationing and scavenging and sleeplessness and dehydration and fever and epidemic for as long as we are both human. Let us be happy adding broken electronics and blunt tools to the ready kits. Promise, even if you don't believe in God anymore, we will finally have quality time together with our respirators, and we will dance into a life of running hand in hand through the charred aftermath, counting our bullets in our blessings one by one. The Long Engagement, a poem from The Handyman's Guide to End Times by Juan J. Morales. He's an English professor at CSU Pueblo. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.